Hey, you can see on the screen there that we're in a, a different place. We're in Nahum chapter one, and we'll consider the whole chapter. So if you don't know where Nahum is, you might know where Mark is. If you head to Mark, go back to Matthew, and then go six books back into the Old Testament, and then you'll find Nahum. If you've hurt Micah, you've gone too far. So there might be some good directions for you to get there. Yeah, it's a difficult book to find. It's not one of the more popular ones in the Old Testament, but I'm sure God will use it for us this morning. So hopefully you're all there. I'll read the whole chapter, chapter one of Nahum. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Alkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you come one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down. And pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. Who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now, some heavy and some serious uh, words in this chapter. Let's just pray briefly. Lord, as we come to consider uh, this heavy passage, grant us, Lord, eyes of faith so that we might see. Um, your holiness and your goodness. Help us, Lord, to see your wrath and help us to be led to your mercy. Be merciful upon us, Lord. We are sinners in deep need of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, just a little bit of an introduction about Nahum. We really don't know too much about this guy, except that he wrote this and it says there that he's from Alkosh. We know a little bit more about the place that he is prophesying to. 
um, he is prophesying about a place called Nineveh. And Nineveh is a part of um, an empire called Assyria. And Assyria, they were a force to be reckoned with. They were huge. They commanded from Egypt. You might think of the Nile River all the way to the Tigris, all the way in Iraq. So from Egypt coming up through Africa, and then you get to Israel, then you go through to Lebanon, and then Iraq is huge. So they were a big force to be reckoned with. And they had a lot of uh, geography underneath their belt. They conquered a lot of people. They were brutal. They were violent. They humiliated their enemies. When they would conquer kings, they would put something like a dog collar on the conquered kings just to humiliate them even more. They would go into the idols and the temples of all of these neighboring nations and destroy them, cutting them off from any religious connection that they had. And so they were brutal and violent. Um, they were vile, really. And so Nahum is bringing a judgment to Nineveh, which is like the capital city of this empire called Assyria. And if you recognize the name Nineveh, it might be because you recognize it from the book of Jonah, which is a more popular book than this one. Now, Jonah was a prophet who was reluctant. He didn't want to go to Nineveh, but God sent him to Nineveh to preach and give a prophecy of repentance so that the city would turn to God. And by God's grace and by God's mercy, there was widespread um, revival in the city where people were turning to God. They were weeping, repenting in sackcloth and ashes, um, thanking God and offering sacrifice to him. Now, that's the same city that we're talking about now, except it was 150 years after Jonah that we're considering now. And just to start with, I want you to think about this. My, um, my great-great-grandfather lived 150 years ago, and my great-great-grandfather apparently was a very godly man um, who maybe even helped translate some of the Tongan Bible. And in a, in a few generations, it is just me, pretty much in my whole family, um, who is at church. And I, I want you to think about this because if you have um, you know, look through Europe and you just see churches that are empty, churches that are converted into bars, churches that are converted into just accommodation for people. Um, churches seem to be dying all around. This revival that they experienced in the past seems to be withering and dissipating and disappearing. And there's a lesson in that, that we, we can't take the faith of generations before us as our own faith. No, you must believe. You have to believe. You can't rely on mom's faith or dad's faith. You yourself have to believe. You can't say there was a wonderful revival and we're just, we're just, just surfing on the waves of that big impact that happened. No, you can't say that. There has to be a personal revival in your own heart. You have to be revived by him. Because in 150 years, that's just shocking. The king himself in Nineveh was repenting in sackcloth and ashes. And 150 years later, this city has returned to its old ways, to its vomit, to its vileness, and to its violence. So you can't take the faith of someone else to be your own faith. You yourself have to believe, my friend. And this is a little bit different to Jonah. Jonah was sent to um, give a prophecy and call for repentance. Nahum is not calling for repentance. Nahum is giving three chapters of just hard judgment 
And we see in chapter 3 that the judgment that is given by God is fulfilled, and this place, Nineveh, will be destroyed. We see even in history, you can look it up, Nineveh was destroyed when Nahum was around. So God fulfilled this promise of judgment because of his wrath. Now, I thought about how I might title this um, sermon this morning, and I've titled it, uh, The Lord Keeps Wrath. And if you look down at verse 2, which is sort of the key verse for this chapter, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And just to make sure that this word wrath is not some abstract word or, you know, little arbitrary thing, um, I thought we might define what wrath is. You can see all through this chapter, it brings it up again in verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Now, the wrath of God is his anger towards sinners. The wrath of God is his anger towards his enemies and towards his adversaries. And you might think, well, what will God do with all of this wrath that he is storing up? What will God do with all of this wrath that he is keeping? My uncle, um, he went on a bit of a tour because he needed to look for some materials for what we were doing for work. And one place in particular he went was in China. And he said while he was in China, he went to this factory and the factory just blew his mind. He'd never seen a factory this big because he's from little old New Zealand. Like we've got the Henderson Moor and Linmore, and we think that's big. And if I was just down in Fakatane this week, they'll think this is huge. They call Auckland the big smoke. Can you imagine that? And then my uncle going to China, seeing this factory, he said he couldn't even see the end of the factory. They had to jump in a golf cart to tour the factory. And what was even more surprising was not only was this factory huge, but it was full. How could you fill up a room so big? How could you fill up all of this space inside of this factory? It seemed impossible to him because he came from little old New Zealand. And what I want to say to you is that this is what is happening in verse 2 when God keeps wrath. It means that he's reserving wrath. It means that he's putting it aside. It means that he's storing it and he's putting it somewhere. And let me tell you that there is no factory in this world that could contain the wrath of God meant just for one sinner. There is no factory in this whole world that can contain his anger and his indignation towards a sinner. This planet cannot hold the wrath of God against the sinner. And so he is keeping wrath. He is storing and reserving wrath for a judgment day. Now, you might think, what is he going to do with this wrath? What well, we see in verse 1, that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. There will be an avenging, a time of avenging, where his judgment is carried out on the sinner, where his wrath is poured out on the sinner in the form of his judgment to that sinner. And the judgment that we are made aware of more clearly as we look at the New Testament is an eternity in punishment, eternity in abandonment, eternity alienated from God and experiencing everything that we deserve because of the sin and the wrath that we have kindled up for ourselves. So there will be an avenging. There will be a time of justice because God will by no means clear the guilty. There will be a time where God passes judgment on people and we know that there is a final day of judgment. 
So wrath is kept for this last day. But you might think, why is God a God of wrath? Why is he angry towards the sinner? Why does he have indignation towards his adversaries and his enemies? Why can't he just let things go? And the reason, again, there is in verse 2, the Lord is a jealous God. The reason that God is going to avenge is because God has wrath. The reason that God is wrathful is because God is jealous. And you might think, well, why is God jealous? And what does jealous mean? How can we think about this word? Well, to understand why God is jealous, the answer is because God is holy. God is, God will avenge because God has wrath. God has wrath because he is jealous. God is jealous because he is holy. Now, what does it mean that God is holy? The, the word holy means that he is totally separate from everything else. The word holy means that he is totally cut from something different. He is not like anything else. He's the most foreign thing that you can think of. Everything in this whole universe has more in common with you than you have with God. Because God stands in a category all by himself. God is in a category of creator. God is in a, ca a category of all-knowing and omniscient and sovereign. God is all by himself in all of those categories, and no one can join him. He is totally by himself, and that's what makes him holy. He is in a unique position. Now, me and you, we share things together. We are all unique in our own ways. Some of us have unique tastes. Some of us have um, unique dispositions. But we are similar in that we are both created. All of us here are created. All of us here are even sinners and fallen short of the glory of God. And God has something totally uncommon to us. He is totally all by himself. He is unique. Now, because he is unique and because he is holy, he has no rival. There is no God like him. There is no other God. Therefore, no other God shall be worshipped. Therefore, no idol should be made that we should bow down to. Therefore, he is to be lifted up and praised and loved and worshipped the way that he deserves to be because he is totally unique and all by himself in his position. Now, when it says that he is a jealous God, it means that he is jealous for his holiness. He is jealous for his own position of uniqueness. And when we bow down to something else, what we are saying to him is, this thing is your rival, but God has no rivals. God is jealous for his godhood. God is jealous for his own worship and glorification, and nothing else will share his glory with him. So he is a jealous God. So you can see there, because he is holy, he is jealous. And because he is jealous, there will be wrath when we do not treat him as holy because he deserves to be treated that way. And when there is wrath, it is stored away for a day of avenging. And that day is the day of judgment, or perhaps the day that you die and judgment will be passed and carried out later on. And just to remind you of the pictures that Nahum brings out of this judgment, you might think, what does this judgment look like? What does it look like when wrath is poured out on the sinner we look at verse 4. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. Water will evaporate in the heat of his anger. Oceans worth of water will evaporate in the heat of his anger. That is just a small picture of what it looks like when God's wrath is poured out on the sinner. Verse 5, the mountains quake before him. The hills mount. The earth heaves before him, the earth and all who dwell in it. Even the mountains 
even the hills, even the rocks will just melt. Water will vaporize and the heat of his justice and of his wrath. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, more nature references, with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue them into darkness. Verse 9 helps us. What do you plot against the Lord? Have you got a plan for the wrath of God? Have you got an evacuation plan for when all of this happens, when the flood comes and when the heat comes? Have you got a shelter to go to? When all of this is poured out on you, when the hills are melting by your side, when water and oceans are vaporizing right before your eyes, have you got a plan to evacuate when this disaster happens? And then he goes on in verse 9, he will make a complete end. In other words, it doesn't matter what you have planned. It doesn't matter what you think you may do in the light of God's wrath. Whatever you think you will do apart from going to him in faith is futile. Whatever you think you can do, whether human technology, whether cheating death, whether we develop AI to a place that that is going to help us in a way that we can think that we are gods, none, none of it will help us in this day of God's wrath. None of it will help us when the judgment comes, when the fire comes, when the flood comes. None of it will be of help to us. And he goes on. trouble will not rise up a second time. He's saying to Nineveh, this is the last time I do this. I'm not going to do this again. And and he goes on and he says in in verse 12, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. This is the last time. This is the last time I will do it. Judgment is definite. Judgment is happening. Judgment is inevitable. It will happen. And it has to happen because God is just. God is holy. God is jealous. God is wrathful and God is avenging. Therefore, it's all going to happen. In verse 10, just to develop that picture more, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. Have you ever tried to start a fire and use a water log log to try and get the fire going? You, you never get it started. What do you use to start a fire? You use kindle wood or you use little brush or you use dry stubble. Why? Because dry stubble does not resist the flame when you put the flame to it. Dry stubble will just puff up in front of your face when you light it on fire and you've got a fire ready to go. In other words, what it is saying is it doesn't matter what you have planned. It doesn't matter what evacuation scheme you have. When the wrath of God comes, you will resist as much as dried up stubble before a flame. And there is nothing you can do about it. There is no plan, no method, no, no cleverness that will get you out of this situation. It will happen. And you cannot resist. Your resistance is even less than dried stubble before a flame. That, that is the consuming fire that is our God. That is what wrath looks like when it is poured out. And those are some very vivid illustrations that Nahum is giving to, um, about Nineveh. And they ought to be taken seriously. And if we go back to that second verse, and keeps wrath for his enemies, that is what is being kept. That is what is being stored up for the sinner. 
That is what is being stored up for the one who does not trust in Jesus Christ. So you can see that God's wrath is immense. God's wrath is bigger than we could ever imagine. And this is what is being kept for the sinner. But here's what gets me. You're a sinner. And this is what you deserve. Just like I deserve. So why not now? Why not at this very moment? Why doesn't he pour out his wrath at the moment that his wrath is kindled? Why would he store it away when he has every single right to pour it out right then and there? Why on the judgment day? Why not today? Why not for you? Because you sinned throughout your life and you've deserved it every single moment of your life. Why hasn't he poured it out already? What are you doing here? Why are you here? And why hasn't this consuming fire consumed you already? Why is it that he's given us year after year after year? Why has he given us centuries and millennia? Why is he storing these things up and not just letting them flow out right now? Now, what does that mean for you? Well, it means that you are, if you do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are still storing up for yourself this judgment. But here is what is wonderful. If you follow on, in verse 3, it says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord is long-suffering. Not only, not only does he keep wrath for his enemies at this later day, but he is keeping his wrath from his enemies today. So that if you are his enemy, you can see his great patience and that he could have at any moment exercised his right to, to just give swift judgment. But instead of doing that, he's given his patience and his long suffering so that you could repent and turn to him so that you could experience his mercy. Here is a time that we are in where God is storing up mercy for the sinner. And at the same time that he is storing it up for the sinner, he is keeping it from the sinner right now. So you ought to consider this, dear friend, if you have not come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, God right now is storing up judgment for you because you will not come and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because you will remain in your unbelief. He is storing up for you wrath, but at the same time, he is keeping that wrath back from you for now so that you might repent and that you might come and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So come and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't we audacious? We, don't we test the patience of God? Do you know that no one else in this whole universe can do that? The demons cannot even test the patience of God because there is no patience for them to be had. But here we are testing the patience of God. Friend, don't test the patience of God. Don't do something that is unique to humans and even the devil himself cannot do. Here is a sin that is unique to you. Do not test his patience. Do not take it for granted. Accept his patience. And repent. Now, not only does he keep wrath for his enemies at this later day, and not only does he keep wrath from his enemies right now, but here is the wonderful thing. If you are an enemy and he has kept his wrath from you today, and you repent and believe, not only will his wrath be kept from you today, but it will be kept from you forever. There is a for ever and in eternity of wrath being kept from you because it has been spent on someone else. And here in this passage, 
we see in verse 7 that the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Where is a place to hide from this flood, from this fire, when the hills will melt and the oceans will vaporize? Where can I go to hide? We take refuge in the Lord himself. We take refuge in his mercy and in his grace. And this is best displayed and ultimately displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Do you remember in the garden when he was looking and, and saying, to, if this cup can pass from me, then let it be. But if your will is for me to go and take this cup and drink all of this wrath that is in this cup and it contains all of the fury that the sinners deserve, then I'll go to the cross and I will drink the cup that is meant for everyone else. All of the pictures here of wrath fit into that cup that Jesus drank as he hung on the cross. All of this wrath that is meant for you, the sinner, is poured out on Jesus Christ, who the New Testament calls our propitiation, the one who absorbs all of the wrath of God. And we see God's mercy displayed as we put it against his wrath. Can you believe that this is what we deserve? Yet this is what we receive? Eternal life? where wrath is kept from us forever because Jesus Christ absorbed the whole thing. That's the wonderful picture that we see here in Nahum. It's the wonderful insight that it gives us into God's mercy and his grace. He keeps his wrath. He keeps his wrath for his enemies. Today, he keeps his wrath from his enemies, but for his people, it will be kept forever and ever away from you. You will never even have a drop of the wrath of God, if you come and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on the cross. So I pray just as there was revival once in the city, that there may be revival in you and that you may enjoy God's pleasure and smiling face upon you because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Let's pray. Lord, as we've examined your word, it makes us sober very quickly to consider your indignation, your furious anger, and your wrath that nothing in this world could contain. And Lord, as we think about your wrath, we know that you are good and your wrath is good. It must be. And we know, Lord, that your wrath is kindled because we have not treated you as you ought to be treated. We have acted and lived contrary to you, living a life of sin away from you, acting as if we were ourselves gods or having idols in front of us, claiming that they were rivals to you. And Lord, we know that your jealousy is good. And we know that it is good for us that we treat you as holy. So Lord, help us today to treat you as such. Help us, Lord, to remember that there is nothing we can do to atone for ourselves, that there is no escape plan from the judgment, that there is no way to hide or get away from it. But Lord, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have provided shelter for the sinner. We thank you that we can hide under his cross and forever have our sin and your wrath dealt with. We thank you that forever and ever we can experience your face toward us because of what Jesus has done. So help us, Lord, to turn to Jesus. Help us to trust in him. And would you grant revival in our hearts so that we might love him and enjoy him and glorify you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.